Okay, then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible or an app, you're welcome to pull that up. And I'm going to read Matthew 2, all of it. So here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And they saw that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you provide, even in these verses, the way, many ways that you reveal yourself, that you revealed yourself then, that you reveal yourself now. Um, I pray that you would teach us, that you would be um, revealing yourself to us, even in the words and the preparation that Nicole's done, um, and that we would come to know you, worship you like the wise men, even a little bit more as we consider your word today. Amen. All right. Um, well, we've got all the kids in here today, which means I've got a word for you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, the word is, and I have a bag of candy. Oh, Kate moved it, um, but there is candy. Um, the word, kids, that I want you all to focus on today is worship. So what does it mean to worship? How would, what would, how would we describe that word, kids? When you think of the word worship, yeah. Praising, yeah. Who, like praising God. Can people praise other things besides God? Yeah. What else comes to mind when you hear the word worship? Yeah. Worship means worship, okay. Okay, well, let's talk about, thanks, Maggie. Thanks for, (laughs) uh, you can think about worship, kids and adults, um, or how about, like, let's hear from some adults for a sec. What is it, how would you describe the word worship? We thought, Matt and I thought about this for a while, so I'm curious to hear what, what, how you guys would describe worship. To show praise or adoration? Yeah, yeah. Show adoration, what? Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Lift up. Yeah. Like the thing that like kind of we give we love the most or you know kind of like structure the things we do and the things that we value based on who or what we worship, right? Um yeah, like that devotion, adoration. Um so kids, that's the word you're going to look for is worship. You're going to Keep track of how many times you hear that word. Yeah. Um, whenever your answer is blessed, does that also count? It's up to you, man. If you want to keep up with it, yeah, however you want. However you want to keep track. The reason why, I'll give you guys a quick vision for why you kids are um, told to keep track of a word is because you matter. You matter, and you are here in a church gathering, you're listening to the word of God preached, you're singing, and those are big things, and they can be hard to pay attention to, but we want you to know, kids in here, that you matter, that you're not just here because your parents are here, um, that we see value in you being here too, and so, but I know that sometimes it's hard to listen for a long time, and so sometimes it's helpful to kind of have like a word that you're going to focus and pay attention to, so, um, However you do that and whatever rules you want to come up with to manage that is up to you. Okay, so um, let's look back for a few minutes. The last few weeks, what we've been doing is walking through different passages of Scripture that kind of piece together the, uh, what we would consider the Christmas story, right? 
And we've been doing that to help cultivate a longing within us, to help form us into being Advent people, people who wait and hope and long for the incarnation of a rescuing king. So we first started by looking at the prophecy in Isaiah and and what it means to anticipate a rescuer, to anticipate a savior. Uh, We looked at the shepherds and at the angels as they proclaimed the arrival of Jesus. And last week, we looked at Simeon and Anna as um, they faithfully waited and God kindly let them see Jesus come. Um, They get to see the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then this week, um, what we're going to look at, I want us to look at this, um, this incompatible force between love and oppression. Um, because that's really what's at the crux of this passage this week that we read. There, it's, it's a long passage, and there's several different things going on, but what I think you see th- the theme throughout it is that there's this incompatibility between love and oppression. Um, so, And when I say oppression, what I mean by that, just to make sure we're on the same page, is just the um, unjust use of authority and power. So that's what I mean when I'm saying oppression. So this passage here deals with familiar things to us, deals with the wise men, deals with King Herod. Um, And the lesson for us here that I think that we can see and that we can, I want us to think on throughout the week is what we worship impacts how we love. So what we worship impacts how we love. So when we read Matthew 2, when you hear it read and, you, you know, you've read it before, what you see is that there's actually a lot of emotions going on in this chapter. We have tension and fear and anger and joy and worship and adoration. There's a lot of different things happening. But in the midst of all of those emotions, I think there is one main truth that arises from it. And here's what it is. It is that Jesus is the king. Like, regardless of what the emotion is, the truth is that Jesus is the king. Four powerful, world-changing words. Jesus is the king. You know, most Christmas plays, um, they present this quiet Jesus with him, you know, all snuggled and wrapped up in a blanket and um, surrounded by, you know, adoring shepherds with cute little sheep and three wise men and camels right by his side. But that's not really how it went down, right? You read it, you read it and you just think about it for one second. And you see, that's not really the picture that scripture is giving us. A closer look at Matthew 2 reveals that there's a much deeper power struggle happening. This is a battle between two kings. It's a battle between two kingdoms. And it's a battle of who is actually worthy to receive our worship. So I want to look at this in two parts. I want to see that, look at it first through the wise men. Um, and they're coming to see Jesus and declare that he is the king. And then I also want to look at it through Herod and the oppressive um, attitude that he has and the escape that Jesus takes as king. So um, let's first start with the wise men. So read with me in verse 2 here. Okay, so these are the wise men, and they're saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
Okay, listen, like I'm a question asker by nature. It is like one of my default settings. Um, so I get a real kick out of this. Can you imagine for a moment here going around Jerusalem, these men going around Jerusalem asking, where's the king who has just been born? Where is the real king? Because you know that's going to get to the king's ear, right? He's going to find out that there are people asking, where is the king? That's really bold and risky. And notice they didn't ask, who is he? They weren't curious of his identity. They know who he is. Jesus was born the king. And he was not born to one day be the king, as we talked about last week. He already is the king. So they know who is at the center of their faith journey here. So when the Magi, some uh, Bibles will use the word Magi, when the wise men, whatever, however you read it, wise men arrive, we don't know how many there are. Um, there is more than three. There, there could have been 10, there could have been 20. One commentary I read even guessed that there could have been up to 100. They traveled a great distance, so they had an entourage with them. They were Gentiles, they were smart, educated people, they were respected and well off. So like they wouldn't just have snuck into town. They would have certainly been noticed. Um, this group has traveled hundreds of miles because they have seen a new star rise in the sky and they had done their research and they had understood that this star was the declaration that the king of the Jews had been born in Israel. And what do they say? We saw his star, and we've come to worship him. They call it his star. I love that. God put the star in the sky, but the wise men chose to follow it, and they knew that it was his star. The searching for the new king, it obviously doesn't go over well with Herod, um, and he wants answers. So he calls together the leaders, the chief priests, and the teachers, and they ask, he asks them what is going on. And they confirm what the wise men have said. Yeah, they're like, yeah, there were prophecies about this. And this blows my mind to think about their king and their Messiah. This was Jewish people. Their king and their Messiah was born practically next door, just six miles away from Jerusalem. And yet those who knew the most did the least. They responded to the call of their king Herod, but did, they did not respond to their true King Jesus. The leaders, they quote Micah to Herod. They quote Micah chapter 5 to Herod. But they act indifferent to what they know. These are men who represent Jewish worship and Jewish law, and yet they still missed the point. It's startling and it's shocking that they know of the Messiah's birthplace and they don't do anything about it. What good is it to know the word and fail to respond? Honestly, what good is it for you and for me to read God's word and then disregard what we've read? By the power of God's spirit, God's word is meant to change us. It is meant to shape us, to draw us closer into love and to fellowship with our king. It's meant to draw us to worship. 
So what good is head knowledge without a heart response? And this has been happening from the very beginning. And then what comes next after this is that Herod appears um, to be scheming. He pretends to be kind, but really he intends to kill. He's looking for information. Now, King Herod was terrifying. If you know much about him, he was a power-hungry tyrant who was given the title King of the Jews. He was given that title by Rome, and then he was sent to conquer Jerusalem for the Roman Empire about 30 years prior to this time. So he was not a descendant of David. He, Herod was not the expected king of the Jews. Not only that, he wasn't even Jewish. He was a terrible and terrifying man. He murdered his own wife and some of his own children. He was ruthless in his rule because he was so paranoid that he was going to lose his power in the name that he was working so hard to establish for himself. He only cared for himself, and he essentially worshipped himself. He led out of fear, and he led with fear. And so when he hears that these wise men have come to worship the one born king of the Jews, he gets pretty stirred up. The anticipation, the proclamation, the fulfillment of Jesus, all of these really beautiful things that we've been looking at, it's now being met with opposition. And the opposition, opposition to Jesus begins, and then we see it continue throughout his life all the way to today. So Herod responds in hatred. The chief priests and the leaders, they respond in indifference. But the wise men respond in worship. They declared that Jesus is the king as they bow in humble, intentional worship. Scripture says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The wise men, who also were not Jewish, were found in a posture of humility, worshiping Jesus. This promised Messiah, it is, he is not merely king of the Jews. He is king of all people. And I love that the first people that we see coming to worship him shows that he is king of all people. And the men offer these presents that we're familiar with, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And this was not simply the act of bringing presents to a king in a customary sort of way of showing honor or respect. This was a heartfelt response from these men who had positions and titles and respect. And they were bowing to the ground in worship to this little child because they knew that he is the king. He's not like any other king. He's above every other king because though he was born of a woman fully human, Jesus the king is God. His reign is an everlasting reign over all kings and all kingdoms. And like the wise men, we ought to respond to Jesus with worship. Jesus, our king, is worthy of worship. And who we worship impacts how we love. They loved with generosity, with giving their own time and their resources. They loved with joy and humility the wise men found who they were seeking, and they are such a striking and beautiful example of faith. They came to a place they did not know, and they worshipped when they met Jesus. They possessed little information, but they had great faith. The wise men bowed low to acknowledge his place over them, to acknowledge their reverence. 
And so there's three responses to Jesus so far in this chapter. The chief priests and the leaders, they seemed apathetic. Herod, he's fearful and he feels threatened. And the wise men, responding with worship and adoration. And those responses are still with us today when it comes to Jesus. Most are uninterested. Others feel hatred or fear. And still others recognize his worth, his rightful rule and reign. And where are we among these responses? Because Jesus is worthy of more than our casual church attendance or our vague association of him. He is worthy of our total surrender and our supreme adoration. He is worthy of our worship. But he will not force us. God invited the wise men through a star. He did not force them. And he invites us to see his son to see the king, to joyfully offer our lives as worshipers to Jesus. This season of Advent, this season marked by waiting and hope and longing, it's all an invitation. It's all an invitation to worship the one true king who has come and is coming again. And after they worshiped the king, the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They listened to the warning, and they returned by another route. And then something similar happens to Joseph, too. Read with me in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. From the moment that Jesus was a baby, people have found him to be a threat. Joseph listened to this warning, even though it would seem counterintuitive. Traveling at night was not necessarily safe, um, and they were taking a little child, and it would have been a, a long journey, a long enough journey, about 75 to 100 miles. Mary didn't have the dream that Joseph had, but she knew the God who had given the dream, and she listened, and she trusted enough to take that action. I love that thinking about Mary and Joseph both have had encounters with the Lord regarding Jesus, and they've both had to rely on and trust each other. So they take Jesus immediately during the night, and they leave for Egypt. They didn't try to change God's plans or negotiate with him for a faster, simpler way, um, like I might find myself doing often when something is harder than I want it to be. They just trusted, and they went. And they stayed in this foreign country with no family where the language would have been different, the currency would have been different, the customs would have been different until God said this time was over after the death of Herod. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? Before Jesus was old enough to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. That's our king's origin story. Herod is furious when he realizes what has happened, that the wise men are gone and that he'd been made a fool and left no way to find the child that he was so desperate to destroy. So what does he do? Remember, what you worship impacts how you love. Herod gives orders to kill all the baby boys who are under the age of two. 
At the heart of the Christmas story, this passage that we feel is so familiar to us, at the heart of the story is a baby who poses such a threat to a powerful man that he kills a whole village full of babies in order to get rid of him. A few different commentaries I read said that based on populations and birth rates at this time, that it was likely between like 20 to 50 little boys. God had allowed Herod to rule, allowing this death and suffering to continue. And this is a hard truth. This is a hard truth of trusting his good reign because there are times when our hearts are broken, when we suffer loss, when evil seems to be winning. The suffering in this passage is actually seems so crushing to me when you really just pause and think about it for a second. Mothers and fathers losing their children. Siblings losing their baby brother. Families being so oppressed by their ruling authority. And then also imagine for me, imagine the weight and burden of Mary and Joseph. These children died because of our child. We escaped, but they didn't. We're okay, and they're not. Are we familiar with that tension? Why was she healed, but he wasn't? Why does one marriage get to survive and another doesn't? Why can they have children, but they can't? Their family seems so stable, but why isn't mine? Where is God in that tension? That's real tension that we're all familiar with. Where is God in that tension? He's with us. He's with us. Jesus came to us in the most devastating and hopeless of places. Remember his origin story. This is a tragic story here. But why would he arrive in comfort and ease when the world he came to save is hurting? What is the point of having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice and oppression and shame and trauma and heartache? Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is with us where the pain is. Jesus actually suffers with you. He gives you hope in the midst of your suffering. How does God redeem and save this suffering, oppressive world? He becomes part of it. He lives a tragic life of suffering, sacrificial love. And he is raised from the dead to give us hope that the sin and evil in the world do not get the last word. God is not responsible for evil or for sin of people in this world. But in his sovereignty, God recycles the bad to work for the good of his people and his purposes. And it is by believing 
that God is in control for his glory and for my good, that we can experience true peace, that we can experience true rest, and we can experience true hope. Even when things don't go our way, even when there is actual terrible stuff happening, or we're sitting in that tension like Mary and Joseph, we can trust that God will sovereignly redeem this world and restore his people to him one day. It doesn't negate the grief. It doesn't negate the heartache or the pain or the suffering. But it does give us a holy perspective as we anticipate King Jesus to one day rule forever, just as God intends. This chapter ends with them returning to Nazareth. And God brings them full circle, perfectly fulfilling what the prophets had said. Jesus the king had been born in Bethlehem. He was called out of Egypt, and now God is providentially ensuring that he is called a Nazarene. The wise men traveled a great distance to find Jesus, but think of the distance that Jesus came to find us. He is a pursuing king to leave the glory of his throne to pursue and to rescue us, to meet us in our suffering and our tension. God sent his son to the world to experience injustice, to take upon himself our sin at the cross and to experience true suffering and oppression. This king is worthy of our worship and offering and we can trust him because he is with us. So this story, it has a pretty good balance of good guy, bad guy characters happening here. So who do you identify with? If we're honest, I think we're probably a mixed bag. Um, maybe you do sincerely des desire to um, be worshipful and full of joy like the wise men, or obedient and faithful like Mary and Joseph. But there's also a little bit of Herod in each of us too. Our little kingdoms our lives and our plans, we're afraid of what Jesus might do. Whose kingdom do we care more for? Whose kingdom do we want to worship? Who do I really worship and love? Do we really want to surrender and submit to the king? And this, this is at our core, this wrestling. But it's not unique to just you or to just me. Because we're all born enslaved to sin, all in need of a savior, all in need of rescue. And that's why this chapter, this tragic story right here, with, mixed with good news and seems like bad news, really is good news. Because God sends Jesus the king. And in Jesus... God's strategy of redemption arrives as a baby. Christ has come, and we get to celebrate that this week. He entered the world. He gave his life for us to be with us. He shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice, and he has risen from the grave to conquer death and bring eternal life to all who believe. This is the gospel that makes the Christmas story more than just a sweet story of a baby or a tragic story of a family. It's a story of hope and light and redemption because the king and his kingdom has broken into this world. 
And this king has promised that one day he will return to rid his creation fully of sin and of death and to bring peace, to make all things right and new. And that is worth celebrating, and he is worthy of our worship. So right now we want to pause before communion and stop to celebrate and stop to worship. We pause and we remember the work of Jesus. That he came for us. So take the bread. Dip it in the wine. And let's declare our worship and love for the king. Let's pray. God, you are the king. And you are the king who came to be with us, to meet us wherever we are, whatever we are feeling, whatever tension or suffering or longing we have, Lord, you came to meet us. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed by that thought. Lord, that we would respond in worship. That we would remember that you are the king and your kingdom is the only one worthy of our worship, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.